Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us as always. And we begin the show today with the unfolding drama at Disney. Call it the oust from the House of Mouse. In a sudden leadership switch, the entertainment giant replacing CEO Bob Chapek with former leader Bob Iger, who spent 15 successful years at the helm. A sudden change, but perhaps not so surprising, one after more than two years of challenges, COVID lockdowns, PR battles, and of course now the streaming slowdown amid high spending on content. Disney stock is down less than enchanted 40% year-to-date. A key down underperformer, in fact, plagued by rising losses in the Disney Plus division. As I mentioned, it spends on content. Disney also under pressure from activist investors like Dan Loeb. Bob Iger is back and so is some of the sparkle, at least pre-market shares, rising some 10.2%, as you can see there. So it's going to be interesting to see how it opens up. And speaking of unexpected returns, Elon Musk over the weekend reactivating Donald Trump's Twitter account after staging an online poll that saw more than 50% of respondents in favour of bringing him back. The former president has yet to post and, of course, remains focused, it seems, on his rival to Twitter, Truth Social. We'll discuss the Musk Twitter strategy with Bradley Tusk, the founder and CEO of venture capital firm Tusk Ventures and an early investor in firms like Coinbase and Uber. Now, the market picture this Monday lacking any form of Uber stimulation. U.S. stocks set for a softer start after last week's pullback. A reflection, I think, in part on the worsening health situation in China. COVID cases surging in many Chinese cities and the country's first COVID-related death in six months. Asian markets reflecting, I think, the seriousness of all this, with Hong Kong down almost 2%. Remember what happens in China also affects Disney's performance in a big way, too. Attendance at its Shanghai theme park has already been pressured by Beijing's zero COVID policies. And actually, that's where we begin today's show. Beijing further tightening restrictions on movement, saying it's facing the most severe phase of the pandemic since the very beginning. Nearly 27,000 new infections reported on Sunday. That's the most since April, as well as the first deaths from COVID in six months, as I mentioned. And as we've reported before, the government's zero COVID policy taking a heavy toll on the mental and the physical health of people all across China. Selena Wang has the story, and I have to warn you, you may find parts of her report difficult to watch. The piercing cries of a grieving daughter. She kneels and cries by her mother, who lays motionless on the ground, still wearing a mask. Her mother jumped to her death from the 12th floor of their apartment building, their compound under lockdown in the northern region of Inner Mongolia after two COVID cases were reported. In this widely shared audio recording, the daughter is heard banging on the tall barricades that lock residents inside. She pleads, open the gate, open the gate. I'm begging you, please. She's eventually allowed to rush to her mother's side. 
Neighbors filmed the tragedy from their windows. Audio messages capture their desperate pleas to building management to be allowed to comfort the daughter. COVID enforcers and police surround the body. Local police said the 55-year-old woman suffered from anxiety disorders. A later statement from police blamed managers of the locked building for their slow response. In the eastern province of Sundong, a group of COVID enforcers in hazmat suits drag a resident out into the streets. Two people hold the man down while others kick and punch him. Another woman is thrown to the ground. Many cases of brutality from COVID workers have not been held accountable, sparking outrage in China. But this time, police, without giving a motive for the attack, detained seven COVID workers involved in the beating. In Hebei province, just outside of Beijing, a desperate father steps out of his car, holding a knife. He tells the authorities his baby son has been out of baby formula for a long time during lockdown. He gets back in the car and drives right through the COVID barrier. Moments later, police arrive. They escort him, handcuffed towards a large group of policemen. They surround him. One policeman sprays him down with disinfectant. He's arrested, all because he needed to feed his baby. After outrage on Chinese social media, local police released a statement saying the man had been fined only 100 yuan or less than $15 and that his child's milk powder problem had been resolved. These scenes of suffering and tragedy adding to rage over the growing human and mental health toll of China's brute force COVID restrictions. In the southern metropolis of Guangzhou, residents locked down for weeks rushed to the streets, pushing, kicking down red barriers and metal gates, trapping them in buildings. Protesters cheering and shouting, demanding that they want to eat. They want to be unsealed. As people struggle to get enough food, essentials, and medical care in lockdown, Beijing recently announced incremental changes to COVID restrictions, but said the country is sticking to its zero COVID policy. And for people who've lost their loved ones in lockdown, these changes are all too little, too late. And Selena joins us now from Beijing. Selena, incredible reporting. Some of those cries um, truly give you shivers. I think for viewers watching, they might be a bit confused because, as you reported at the end of that, there were suggestions that Beijing was going to loosen some of the restrictions. Now we're talking about significantly rising cases again. And I guess the big fear is there's not going to be any easing of restrictions because those two things don't work, particularly given the evidence in, in, in that video. Yeah, Julia, what we heard from the authorities a few weeks ago was really these incremental baby steps to adjust the policy. They claim that they want to make the approach to COVID more scientific and more targeted. But the reality is, is that these local governments, they're still under pressure to keep COVID cases low. And all they have to rely on are these brute force tactics. So as you say, as these COVID cases are rising and wintertime is coming, we're still seeing these lockdowns. But in some places, including here in the capital, in Beijing, they're not calling it a lockdown. 
and they're urging people in the largest district to stay at home. Even in my district, where there's no official government announcement, the streets are quiet and the restaurants have all stopped in restaurant dining. Many of the stores are closed. So there's this general fear and there is a desire to keep those cases low, but they're still sticking to the same old tactics of lockdowns, mass quarantine and testing. And those heartbreaking stories, Julia, that I was just reporting on in that story, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That is what we're able to capture from social media before it's immediately censored by the authorities. There are so many cases of these tragic stories that go undocumented. Of course, there's the economic toll from zero COVID, the human toll, and the mental health costs. The World Health Organization estimated that there's been a 25% jump globally from anxiety and depression in the first year of the pandemic. Now, those rates, like much, much higher in China, where the policy, the restrictions, it has been the most draconian and the most frequent. And now we're sitting here three years into the pandemic and it is still continuing. And there's so much uncertainty because there's no knowledge of when all of this is going to end. Living in China is like constantly playing roulette. You never know if your city might go into lockdown, if you're going to be banned from leaving your home, if you're going to struggle to get groceries, struggle to get milk powder for your baby like the man in that story we mentioned, or if you're going to be sent to a quarantine facility, Julia. Yeah, it's roulette, to your point. Selena, uh, great job in capturing what you can and uh, helping us understand. Selena Wang there, thank you so much for that. Okay, back to one of our other top stories today, and that's the sudden leadership change at Disney. Chapek is out, Iger is back in. Frank Pelota joins us now on this story. I think it's shocking for the industry and for those watching this, but perhaps not surprising in light of the challenges of the two and a half years. And actually, COVID is just a small fraction of that. The challenges with with PR, the arguments with Scarlett Johansson. I think a lot of people will remember all these different points. And I guess the latest, uh, the earnings, which was Mm. the the sort of death knell to to JPEX leadership. Yeah. I mean, think about it this way. Disney has built a media empire around stories about royalty returning to troubled kingdoms to save it from peril. And it's currently living that fairy tale in real time with Iger, who is arguably one of the most notable CEOs in the history of the Walt Disney Company. One of the most notable names in the company's history, second only, in my opinion, to Walt Disney himself, is now coming back at a time to help turn this company around. Now, what do I mean by turn this company around? What I mean that is that it is it lost one point five billion dollars in uh, in the last quarter in streaming, even though it grew, it took a huge hit on Wall Street, took a huge hit all year long. Um, some other places it's really struggling is that, you know, even though the parks are doing well, a lot of fans did not like Bob Chapek. They felt that they were being nickeled and dimed by him a little bit, that he kind of boosted everything kind of up. But let's talk about the shocking development of all of this. This is What I've been telling people is that this is shocking, but not necessarily surprising. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that Iger for 15 years was the head of, was the head of Disney, arguably, like I said, one of the most notable names in Disney's history. And if you talk to people in Hollywood, it's one of the greatest runs, greatest tenures in a company's history. And they also, Disney, I mean, 
gave a contract to Bob Chapek after all of the controversies and hiccups that we've been talking about. They gave him a contract that started in July that was supposed to run to 2025. And now let me read you what uh, Susan Arnold, the chairman of the board at Disney, said last night. She said, we thank Bob Chapek for his service to Disney over his long career, including navigating the company through the unprecedented challenges of the pandemic. The board has concluded that as Disney embarks on an increasingly complex period of industry transformation, Bob Iger is uniquely situated to lead the company through this pivotal period. Another way of saying that is that thank you so much, Shapek, for getting us through one of the most tumultuous times in our nearly 100-year history, but we believe our future is better in the hands of Bob Iger. Yeah. And and quite frankly, many of the challenges that they're facing, everybody in the media industry is facing. One wonders how differently um, Iger would have handled the past um, two and a half years, particularly since he was in the sort of leadership or chairman position until, what, January of this year. It's going to be fascinating to see what comes next. Frank, great to have you with us. Frank Pelota there. Thank you. Okay, the FIFA World Cup is underway in Qatar as we speak. Iran and England are in action on the tournament's first full day of competition. Let's get straight to Amanda Davies, who is in Doha for us. And um, I have to say, the scoreline looks pretty exciting um, for all the uh, the Brits out there. But let's be clear, this game is about far more than than football, about sport, particularly for those watching at home in Iran. And uh, I believe there was not even a national anthem as this match began. Amanda took us through it. Yeah. Yeah, Julia, just before we come to that, you might be able to hear quite a noise behind me. And uh, this, of course, was meant to be the day that the tournament was due to kick off before the Qatar match was moved to, to Sunday, a day ahead of time. The Argentinians have certainly arrived ahead of their opening game in Saudi Arabia. They're just a here en masse in the Souk Waqif with their bands, with their drums. It is very much what you would expect to be a normal World Cup uh, evening in one of the host cities. The atmosphere is brilliant. They get their moment in the spotlight, though, tomorrow. But yes, as you rightly say, it's currently halftime uh, as England take on Iran in their opening match in Group B. And so much of the build-up was dominated by talk of politics and protests because of we've seen in recent time now into the third month, pretty much, of these anti-government protests in Iran. We've seen more and more Iranian athletes using their platform to have their voice. The players' build-up was absolutely dominated. They were peppered with questions about it. Ali Reza, uh, Jahan Bash, had said they were going to take a collective decision as a team as to what to do, if anything. And their coach, Carlos Quirosha, a man who knows the Iranian politics more than most outsiders. He's a Portuguese national, but this is his second stint in charge of the team, leading them into a third World Cup. He said he was open. He had said to the players they were allowed to take a stand, make a protest, as long as it fell within FIFA rules. So what happened as the players lined up for kickoff ahead of their match for the national anthems was that the Iranian players decided not to sing their anthem and it's seen as a show of support, solidarity for the anti-government protesters. My colleague Don Riddell is there inside the grounds. He said on the way in he spoke to, he saw quite a few fans who were wearing t-shirts saying things like free Iran and rise with the women of Iran. Um, There's no doubt that at full time the players will be asked about what it means, uh, why they decided to take their stance because of course 
we know it is not an easy thing for them to do. Um, you know, there are likely to be consequences uh, for them because they have taken this moment. Uh, sadly, though, the match is not going as they would have hoped. They're currently 3-0 down to England. The players just heading back onto the pitch for the start of the second half. But they're very much hoping that they can use this moment here at the World Cup, not only to qualify out of the group stage for the first time in their World Cup history, but to give them a longer, bigger platform to make their point. Yeah, it's it's such an important point. It's not actually about winning the game, so it's about the platform and the message they can send at this moment too. Um, Amanda, no shortage of questions nor controversies in this tournament, and we should be speaking to you, I'm sure, on a daily basis, and hopefully we'll get to talk about the sport as well in more depth as well. But for now, thank you, Amanda Davies. Thank you for joining us there from Doha. Okay, tributes are being paid to the victims of Saturday's deadly shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado. Members of a synagogue held a vigil Sunday night for the five people killed and 25 injured at Club Q after a man entered around midnight and immediately started shooting. Colorado's governor ordered flags to be lowered to half-mast on all public buildings through Saturday. President Joe Biden said the shooting was senseless and said threats of violence are increasing. And an earthquake in Indonesia has claimed at least 56 lives and injured hundreds more. It happened earlier on Monday. The 5.6 magnitude quake hit the West Java province, according to officials there. Emergency operations are underway and shelters are being built for victims of the quake. Schools, homes, a mosque and a hospital have all been damaged or destroyed. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but straight ahead, Ukraine and Russia playing the blame game after weekend shelling at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. We're live with the latest from Kyiv and Elon Musk wheeling out the welcome wagon for Trump on Twitter, but will the former president return? More on the ongoing turmoil at Twitter after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and we're talking Twitter once again. Our next guest says, in the best case, Elon Musk is a visionary. He sees things we can't. He does things we can't, quote. Well, over the weekend, Twitter's new owner tweeted a late night image of himself working alongside his coders. Bradley Tusk goes on to say the least generous explanation is that Musk is essentially no different from the likes of Donald Trump or Kanye West. He needs attention ahead of anything and everything else. West arrived back on Twitter at the weekend and Trump has been given the option to do so. But the former president doesn't seem all that keen, at least for now. Truth Social uh, is is through the roof. It's doing phenomenally well. Truth Social has been very, very powerful, very, very strong. And I'll be staying there. But I hear we're getting a big vote to also go back on Twitter. Uh, I, I don't see it because I don't see any reason for it. True Social, of course, is the alternative platform that, that Donald Trump and his team created, just so that you're clear. Joining us now, Bradley Tusk is the founder and CEO of venture capital fund Tusk Ventures. He also worked as a political, political strategist for former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and communications director for Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer. Bradley, that's a long line of titles. I apologize. And great to have you um, on the show with yeah, us. I'll take it. <laughs> you know, we, spoke, you. we spoke a couple of weeks ago and you said, look, actually, the Twitter purchase by Elon Musk could end up being a 40 odd billion um, PR spend ultimately for his other yeah. companies. But I like this op-ed that you did in Fortune. That's why I pulled those quotes out of it. Do you think the truth lies somewhere in between? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think he certainly is motivated by attention, just like Trump, just like you said, Kanye West. And he is certainly a visionary and an incredible business person as well. So it's a little bit of both. But when we spoke last, Julia, if you remember, the argument that I was throwing out there was because Tesla's market cap is so wildly overvalued compared to other car companies, that differential is really hype and it's PR and it's his ability to sort of command this huge following in a retail investor base. Um, And the thesis was, well, maybe by owning Twitter, he can kind of own the hype machine, keep promoting Tesla, promote SpaceX once it goes public, and it's effectively a cost of doing business. I'm now starting to wonder if the risk is on the other foot, which is if Twitter truly collapses and he is seen as someone who just made this terrible decision, this terrible mistake solely based on his need for attention, solely based on his ego, does the same thing happen to a certain extent to Tesla and SpaceX? Tesla is very much a real company, but as of this morning, it had a market cap of over $560 billion. General Motors is exactly one-tenth that at $56 billion, even though it has twice as many car sales itself. So Musk got to be careful they didn't open up Pandora's box here and the whole house of cars starts coming down. How high is that probability, Bradley? Because it's interesting what you say. I mean, certainly from some of the, the sort of conversations behind the scenes of those people that were making the decision on Friday, whether or not they were hardcore enough to stay, it was a case of the vision that we've been presented is the risk that we may end up going bankrupt. The alternative is you take a few months pay and perhaps salvage some of your stock and you walk away. Um, those choices were quite stark. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the employees there now are living with a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And I think clearly the employees at Musk companies produce a lot of value or otherwise he wouldn't be so successful. But you never hear about Tesla being what a great place to work. Right. You hear about people being you know, made to stay on the factory floor 24 hours a day and things like that. And so ultimately, if Twitter reflects his other companies, it's not going to be a great working environment. It's already highly uncertain. Both of the alternatives that you presented weren't really that great. Um, and so if you're a talented engineer in this economy, there's tremendous demand for your services. And there's no real reason to stay at Twitter. You know, it's interesting when I saw those Twitter um, pictures or those tweeted pictures that, that Musk sent out and he was with the crew and they were looking at coding. There was a lot of positive feedback. There was also questions thrown out there of, of actually how much of the coding Musk himself understands as it pertains to Twitter, just how well he ultimately understands this business and that actually that kind of behavior is normal of a a startup leader, of a a visionary leader, whatever you're doing and whatever you're building. Can I just get your expertise on that? Because I think you of everybody understands sort of what it takes to to build from the floor or rebuild in this case. Right. So so I'm an early stage venture capitalist, which means I invest in companies when they're really first getting started. Um, and at that point, you don't necessarily expect to know what the ultimate business model will be, what ultimately your best revenue sources will be. You don't. There's a lot you don't know. You're basically betting on a founder and their underlying idea and their ability to execute it. That's very different than a company already valued at $44 billion, right? When something's valued at $44 million, you can say through trial and error, we'll figure out what works best. Um, you put a lot of zeros after that, and it's a different situation. And look, one thing that has been disheartening to me is when you look at the ideas that Musk has thrown out there so far, there's nothing new or original. It's, oh, we'll do e-commerce. We'll be more of a town square. It's just taking things that already exist on the Internet and saying, we'll put them all onto Twitter. I don't really see how that's going to accomplish all that much. 
And so, sure, if Twitter were a brand new company, this were 2007, all these conversations would make perfect sense. But 15 years later, it's a little late. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And of course, the $44 billion valuation is a value that he's put on it by, by buying it at that price, too. Yeah. Um, what, yeah, what do you make of the um, Trump potential or at least the option to come back at this stage? Because there was an online poll on Twitter held by Elon Musk himself. I mean, he talked about having this moderation council. I just wonder how much um, of that is taking place behind the scenes. And, and at the same time, he's saying, actually, that in terms of volumes, news flow, journalism, let's be clear, tied to the FTX collapse. I mean, what they're seeing is, is yeah. bigger and greater than they've ever seen before. Is that monetizable? Is there something in what we're hearing and seeing? It, you know, it's been really hard, right? I mean, the, the business model for the platforms is advertising, right? We are the product. We go on there and they sell advertisers access to us through really finely tailored algorithms. And that's worth a lot of money. And the more negative the content, the more we tend to sort of watch the train wreck. And therefore, they can charge more money for advertising and make more money. Um, that has worked really well for Facebook for Instagram, um, but it really has never worked as well for Twitter because the actual platform itself doesn't really lend itself nearly as well to advertising. And so they may be able to attract a lot of attention, but Twitter has attracted a lot of attention before. I mean, Donald Trump arguably ran his 2016 presidential campaign over Twitter, and yet their economics didn't improve all that much. So sometimes I see this a lot, you know, in my work, you're looking at tech startups, there are ideas that could be interesting. They might be good for society, but that doesn't necessarily make them billion or multi-billion dollar tech companies. And I think with Twitter, that unfortunately might be the case. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see. Um, one of the other things you said in light of uh, the FTX collapse, and it's something certainly in the crypto sphere that we've been talking about on the show quite, quite a lot over the last couple of weeks, is venture capitalists might start using common sense after this. What do you mean by that? And, and yeah. what extra is going to be demanded by all of us, quite frankly, in terms of transparency, whether it's a private company or otherwise? Yeah. So, look, I mean, I think that venture capital is very, very subject to momentum and very subject to FOMO, fear of missing out. And as a result, once investors see other VCs succeeding with certain types of investments, they say, well, we ought to do that, too. Their investors start asking them, why aren't you in crypto as well? And that puts a lot of pressure. And that just starts to drive kind of a, a train where ultimately um, things get out of control, valuations are way too high, the companies aren't necessarily even real like we saw with FTX, um, and that all leads to a debacle. So one of the tricks, I think, as a venture capitalist to say, this trend is interesting, risky, but that's what being a venture capitalist is, let's, let's invest in it. Or this trend is risky and doesn't really make all that much sense, because if you look at crypto specifically, Probably 1% of the people on there genuinely do love the idea of a sovereignless currency that has no borders and no central banks, no central authorities. And I think that's kind of great for those people. But again, that's less 1% or less than 1%. The rest are people who are just riding along to try to ride the wave up. Wave up. Um, and that's not really sustainable. So while my fund, we did invest in Coinbase that worked out really well. We're in a few other crypto companies. We've been generally pretty conservative on our crypto investments, simply because when I can't understand the value proposition, maybe it's because I'm too stupid. But my view is if I can't get it, I'm probably not going to put my money behind it. Yeah, it's good investment advice. If you don't understand it, you know, don't assume that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bradley, always great to talk to you. Brad Tusker, Thank founder you and CEO me. of Tusk Ventures. Always a pleasure. Thank you. 
More First Move after this. And welcome back to First Move. Lots to discuss this Monday, as you've already seen, including goals, gobbles and gifts. The World Cup kicking into high gear. Go England, my lifelong cheer. All this is U.S. Thanksgiving's break draws near and retail investors hoping for a holiday season without peer. On Wall Street, meanwhile, if I can get my teeth back in, U.S. stocks beginning the holiday shortened week a touch softer. As you can see, their sentiment a little bit austere, uncertainty over future Federal Reserve policy, the usual line, and of course, rising COVID cases, as we were discussing earlier in China, also, I think, impacting sentiment more broadly. Disney shares, though, however, roaring like a Lion King. After its leadership shakeup, shares up some eight and a half percent on news that Bob Iger is back in the driving seat, replacing CEO Bob Chapek, who led the entertainment giant for more than two and a half turbulence-filled years. Chapek came under fire from activist investors to do more to boost the firm's sagging share price and get a handle on rising costs, particularly at the Disney Plus streaming division. Iger has agreed to stay on for two years as the new Disney CEO. Okay, let's bring it back to one of our top stories today. And we're in Ukraine now, where an inspection team from the IAEA is scheduled to arrive at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant today after explosions shook the area over the weekend. The IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi says whoever is responsible for the shelling is, quote, playing with fire. It's still unclear who is responsible for the explosions with Kyiv and Moscow blaming each other. Matthew Chance joins us live now from Kyiv. Matthew, uh, the blame game can continue, but it does feel like at this stage it's luck rather than management that something more severe hasn't happened. And, of course, that the fallout then could be dramatic, devastating. Yeah, quite, quite literally, um, because we're talking about radioactive material. Um, and, and if the shells that are being fired in the vicinity of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant were to land on something critical, and so far they haven't, then that could have a devastating um, impact, of course. So Ukraine is no stranger uh, to the impact of, of, of nuclear disasters. And so it's particularly sensitive uh, to the fact that this nuclear power plant, which is the biggest in Europe, by the way, is now smack bang in the middle of uh, Europe's, well, the you know, middle of a European war zone, which is you know, a very, very dangerous place to be indeed. You're right. Both sides are trading accusations. The Russians say it's Ukrainian artillery that is hitting buildings and infrastructure sort of in the area of the power station. Um, the Ukrainians are saying, no, it's, it's the Russians. They're basically shelling themselves uh, because the Russians are in control at the moment um, of that region. Uh, but whoever's in control, yeah, obviously, the IAEA, the UN's nuclear watchdog, is very concerned on behalf of the international community and is calling on both sides to step back and to you know, stop fighting around this area um, you know, in case something goes wrong. Um, the IAEA is saying we're not talking about miles or kilometres uh, from where the fighting is happening. We're talking about metres, just metres away from potential nuclear catastrophe. And so that's how close it is. That's how alarmed uh, the, U the, the UN's nuclear watchdog, the IAEA, uh, is. Meanwhile, of course, fighting continuing all across that region and all across those front lines in Ukraine in this ongoing, increasingly brutal war between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, we'll have to uh, see what the IAEA say when they've um, actually been able to inspect and, and have a look at what's going on there. Matthew, great to have you with us, as always. Thank you. Matthew Chance there. 
Okay, coming up here on First Move, a story of persistence and an inspiring reminder that you are never too old to follow your dreams. Coming up, we'll meet the Barefoot Empress. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. A lifelong dream of education is becoming a reality for one remarkable woman in India. Barefoot Empress, a new short documentary, follows the journey of 96-year-old Kathyayani Amma as she joins a first-grade classroom for the very first time. The film was inspired by director Vikas Khanna's own grandmother, who was not given the opportunity to receive a formalized education. Amma, who is now 100 years old, and her story are also helping girls in underserved communities across India get the education they deserve. Khanna is partnering with several nonprofits, including Leap to Shine, which pledged to educate 5 million girls in India. And joining us now is Michelin star chef Rostian Ter, director Vikas Khanna, and Oscar nominated filmmaker Doug Rowland. And they are the team behind Barefoot Empress. Vikas, Doug, welcome to the show. It is awesome to have you with us. Um, Vikas, I want to begin with you. Congratulations, first and foremost. Um, this film is just over 15 minutes, but it doesn't half pack a punch. And I was there at the premiere, and I don't think there was a dry eye in the house, but they were happy tears. Just explain who Amma is, what she means to you, and, and what your message was in writing and directing this movie. I think Amma is somebody, I've never met somebody with so much courage. Mm. She, she wanted to live this dream. And when she got the opportunity, you can see how grateful she is, you know. I have been in her room. She was up at 3 a.m. in the night learning tables. She hates mathematics. I must put it on the table right she hates mathematics <laughs> and really struggles with math. And you'll see it in the movie also that how hard it is for her to calculate. But I've seen her work so hard and I've followed her life over the last four years. And she is a symbol of people not giving up on their dreams. And also grateful people are, as we are so privileged to receive education like this. And I think we were built on women like this, our careers, our lives women like mom, my grandmom, who never got the opportunity to go to school, but they were most intelligent in the whole family. Yeah. And this is what I felt about Amma, and that's what connected. Yeah, I was just going to say, you see in the movie in the beginning, she's laughed at, she's, she's, she's ridiculed. I mean, she was a mother, she was then widowed, she worked in a temple cleaning just simply to keep her family together and to keep them fed. And then you see the power that she has as a star pupil and how suddenly the her classmates who are young children look up to her, idolize her as someone that shows them you're never too old to follow your dreams. Yes. Yeah, we're both speechless. Doug, come in here. What was it about this story, and I think we're already explaining it, and Vikas, of course, that caught your attention and made you want to add, what should we call it, um, some Hollywood glitter, perhaps? You already had that, but your sparkle. You know, this was something where the moment that Vikas first told me about this story, I was just taken by it, like anyone has been who's seen it. I mean, you know, Amos is someone who 
you know, you can't help but be inspired and, and smile when you see her on screen and you hear her story. Um, but moreover, you know, Vikas is someone who I've gotten to form a really strong friendship with over the last couple of years. And um, I was also so intrigued by what I knew he his plans were for this film to, to, to really help you know, so many young girls in India and have a huge impact there. And, you know, as a filmmaker myself, who, who has a history of social impact filmmaking, that was something that really, really spoke to me as well. So it was, it was first and foremost, Ama and who she is and what she represents in her story, but also the impact that a film like this can have. Yeah. I mean, Vikas, your last movie that you did and the last time you were on the show, you were talking to us about your role as an ambassador for widows. And this is part of this story, too. And the importance, as you said, of allowing young girls and women to be the absolute best they can be in in all forms. And I think the word that you used was when a woman's widowed in India, she becomes inauspicious. She's seen as bad luck. And I think some part of the power of this movie, too, is about breaking what can be a devastating life cycle for women and that they perhaps never achieve the things that they should. Just explain the importance of, of that part of your of your story and your power and, and the story that you're trying to tell. So for the last color, we, we've partnered with so many amazing foundations, especially with Global Fund for Widows, who empower widows around the world. Just to put it uh, here, there are more than 350 million widows in this world, and many of them have been disinherited. And they have no, dis- they're totally disinheritance. And I felt that, you know, I was, when you spoke to me, I was at the, in Washington, D.C., I was, I was the only guy in the crowd that was on the stage. And here was, you know, picking up the issue of girl education, because I don't think so there could be a foundation of a nation until girls get rights to be educated. And I think this is what Amma has become such an ambassador and symbol of that if she was educated, she would have not lived a life like this. Yeah, it's about breaking that cycle. And actually, because very quickly, it's all the more important after COVID with fears and concerns now that millions of girls that were in secondary school have been forced to drop out and they'll never go back. So there's never been a more important moment, I think, for for this movie to shine a light on the importance of education for young girls and to keep them in that education. So we are rehabilitating classrooms and actually the first classroom is there in honor of Doug's little girl, Louisa. And he was on the live camera looking at this little classroom. And uh, we are rehabilitating. We are also working on nutrition because that's also a very important part of girls dropping out of school. And we are also working on giving them the right tools so that they can be educated. You're absolutely right. More I'm understanding this issue in India right now, in some parts of the country, I feel that it needs more attention. And I'm glad that we have partners right now on ground who are working towards this mission. It's amazing when I see mask or Amma's portrait in the classroom. I think it just fills my heart with so much joy that Amma's legacy is massive. What she has done, especially when she says, I'm not ashamed to sit in the classroom with my great-grandchildren's age. That shows the courage of a woman when you're bound by social norms all your life. She's not ashamed of this. And all, I remember when she was being celebrated, all the neighbors who criticized us, they were right there in that function, celebrating Amma. So it takes a brave heart to break that norm. 
And, that's and a powerful woman. Um, Doug, we want to take what is a, a local story and make it global, which again is, is tied to what you're doing. And it's funny, we spoke to the IMAX CEO recently, and he was talking about the importance of local language film and how more and more people around the world are sort of resonating, being inspired by this kind of movie. Talk to us about what qualifying for Oscar entry, and we'll all keep our fingers crossed, means for this movie and just spreading the message far and wide. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, this is a this is a story that needs to be seen by as many people as possible. And, um, you know, a platform, um, you know, like the Academy Awards, like, you know, sharing it in, in all the different spaces we we have been sharing it, it, it magnifies this story and allows it to have um, first and foremost, the, the emotional impact that, you know, that it will have um, in, in people getting to hear directly from Alma and, and learn about her story. And then beyond that, the work that we were just talking about that that's happening in classrooms um, in India, have that be, have the largest impact it possibly can have. So we just want as many people to see this story as possible and be moved by it and, and be inspired to, um, to do something. Yeah, she's certainly inspiring um, because she's now 100. Talk to me about how her education is going, because we know she's a star pupil. I mean, she blew away all the tests that she was doing. And um, you could tell that she was sort of quietly very proud of that. <laughs> and she tells me that, you know, I just made sure that nobody cheats from me. <laughs> and um, if I was to be with Amma, I'm going to go and enter new children's book which you've written on a life and I think that's very important and I wanted to see that we have a new poster of the movie and she hasn't seen that I'm going to take that with me and see an update on her education so I'll be updating on my social media tomorrow Amazing and, and very quickly Vikas you tweeted out a picture of her holding your arm and you get a sense of how tiny she is she's a really tiny lady this is yeah. This is one teeny, tiny, fragile lady who is so powerful in her heart. Um, one can only imagine what it's like yeah. being in her presence. Every time I leave Amma, I feel that I had the privilege to be in the same room, breathing the same air, and she's like a goddess. And uh, I did ask her one question, which is not in the movie. Do you forget who treated you so bad? And you have to do that to move on. Like the wisdom, what she says in the end of the movie, that you can stop going to God's home. You stop God coming to my home. Like that's brilliance of 100 years of the wisdom who survived and sustained and endured so much and forgiven everyone who stopped her from being someone. Wow. Forgiveness is all important, but despite or with them, she's yeah. one heck of a powerful lady now. Vikas, congratulations on the movie. Doug, same to you. Fingers crossed. We'll see how it does. Vikas Karna there and Doug Rowland. Great to chat to you both. Thank you. Our goddess. <laughs> Coming up on First Move. NASA's mission to eventually bring mankind back to the moon reaches a critical moment. We'll have the latest details after this.
Welcome back once again. It's an incredibly exciting day for NASA's Artemis mission with the Orion spacecraft, performing a critical maneuver and to enter the next phase of its journey around the moon. Kristen Fisher joins us with the details from Washington, D.C. I'm already bouncing up and down on my chair. I read this morning that the spacecraft passed around 80 miles above the lunar surface. So in space terms, that's practically kissing. That's super close. I know. And Julia, I'm dying to see these images because it is going to be the closest uh, that a human rated spacecraft, a spacecraft designed to carry humans, has ever flown to the moon since the Apollo program back in the 1970s. And so, uh, unfortunately, NASA was not able to share those images live because it happened, that close approach, just 80 miles off the surface of the moon. Uh, It happened on the far side of the moon, meaning that they lost communications with the spacecraft for about 25 minutes. But uh, we got to watch that approach live. And then, Julia, on the other side, we we saw something that was just remarkable, something we've seen before, but we're getting to see with a, a fresh set of eyes. And that was uh, us, the Earth, truly just a pale blue speck in the vastness of outer space. And the Orion spacecraft, which was sitting on top of that rocket right there uh, when it launched five days ago, uh, it was beaming it back live to Earth. So we're seeing some Im- images being back, being beamed back live right now, Julia. The other ones, the good ones, like you're waiting for, where we're going to see those really crisp, clear images of all the craters on the moon, uh, that's going to take a little bit of time uh, to beam back to Earth. But I'm waiting for it. It should be back any minute now. I was about to say, never mind beaming back. Beam me up, please. Um, (laughs) We don't know precisely how long we have to wait for those images. Um, Is that right, Kristen? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. no. No, that makes sense. It's um, Yeah, it's a project for them, too. Just explain to our viewers who may have missed the initial launch. I'm not sure anybody did, but just in case, because this is part of a bigger project to sure. put man and woman back on the moon. And at this stage, at least, there are no humans up there. Snoopy. Snoopy is the uh, most <laughs> yeah, famous Snoopy individual. Snoopy and mannequins. Oh, yes, Snoopy right, and mannequins, mannequins for right now. <laughs> but, yeah, this is the... The dawn, the beginning of the Artemis program, the twin sister of Apollo in Greek mythology. And so this is the first test flight. Uh, It's designed to test the Orion spacecraft, which sat on top of the SLS Artemis rocket. Um, And it is going to carry humans farther than any humans have ever flown into outer space. And so what's so critical about this is if this mission is a success, uh, then it's going to pave the way for Artemis 2 and Artemis 3. Artemis 2, the next time this spacecraft flies, will have four astronauts on board doing that flyby of the moon. Then Artemis 3, which likely will happen in 2025, uh, that will be the Apollo 11 equivalent of the Artemis program, when astronauts finally step on the surface of the moon. This time, though, it's going to be a the first woman and the first person of color. And also, Julia, this time they're going to leave behind a lot more than just flags and footprints. They want to build a base and stay on the moon permanently and then someday go on to Mars, Julia. Yes, I love that. Way more than flags and footprints. 2025, here we come. Kristen Fisher, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. And finally, the Black Panther roared once more this weekend. Emotional Marvel sequel Wakanda Forever holding on to its top perch at the U.S. box office, raking in another $67 million. That adds up to a mammoth $564 million worth of sales worldwide so far, topping ticket sales from the first installment back in 2018. And that's it for the show. We'll be back tomorrow. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Stay
stay with CNN. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.